0: Vision is to have a positive impact on human health. The approach is to understand disease at a fundamental level and then intervene. And the way we do it is a multidisciplinary team working together over time.
1: This
2: is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of
1: technology and health. David Altshuler was living the academic dream as professor and human geneticist at Harvard and MIT, where he was co-founder and deputy director of the Broad Institute. Yet in December 2014, he left this life to join Vertex in continued pursuit of his translational vision.
2: This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa
1: Sunan. And I'm David Shewitz. And today's show is sponsored by Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and consulting practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare care system. So, David. Yes, Lisa.
2: (laughs) We talk a lot about data and engineering on this show. Ironic since I have a master's in political science. But you wrote a pretty interesting piece recently talking about a different kind of engineering the kind that involves cells, not software. Tell us a little bit more about
1: that. Right. Well, so this kind of stemmed from um, a friend of ours, uh, Janelle Anderson, yeah. right? Right. Um, who had a great podcast, Human Proof of Concept, mm-hmm. um, and uh, she was chemist trained Whiteside Lab. Um, you know, then we did consulting, and anyway, she uh, is sort of now chief strategy officer of some new company. I'm not an investor, but it's a really interesting company, uh, Century. Um, I think it's uh, Century Therapeutics. Mm-hmm. But the basic idea: they're turning iPS uh, C cells um, into you know into to use them to um, get them to become immune cells and fight the immune system. But mm-hmm. in listening to her talk, it just became fascinating to the extent to which we're starting to think about just these audacious engineering of cells and all these functionalities that mm-hmm. are being put in it. We're routinely discussing. We're routinely discussing. Here is this iPSC thing that we discovered, you know, it's sort of as an alternative human embryonic stem cells, um, uh, you know, the Nobel Prize a few years ago. And now it's being rut- like. Act, you know, actively contemplated for therapy. So and then translation all, brought to life, huh? But it's incredible. And gene therapy and CRISPR, and all of these different mm-hmm. concepts are like now routinely and often in the same company and the Mm -hmm. the idea is this sort of engineered cell as this super vehicle. So I just thought it was really cool and positive. That's awesome. Very interesting. It was a good article. I really appreciated reading it. Cool. So today's guest, uh, speaking of innovative, David Altshuler is someone I've known and admired for years. He's been a vivid inspiration as I've followed him through the Harvard MD-PhD program an internal medicine and endocrinology at MGH. He's a pioneering geneticist and passionate about translating biology into medicine. We are so delighted to welcome him to our show today. Welcome, David.
0: Hello great to be here. (laughs) All right,
1: so so much to cover, so little time. So I know you were born in New York State and moved to Brookline, Mass, when you were two and have remained in the area since, and I understand you grew up in an education-focused household. I think your mom was a teacher who went on to get a PhD in education, and your dad a professor who studied urban planning and also served as Secretary of Transportation in Massachusetts in the early 1970s. It sounds like Uh, you learned some important lessons from his decision to leave academia for this role. Can you fill us in a bit?
0: Sure. That's definitely a question I've never been asked before in this setting. (laughs) Um, But it was actually a very powerful thing. You know, my dad and I are very close, and I admire him tremendously. And he was a professor who was studying uh, a very key issue at that time, which was how do we develop cities? There was a lot of work, as you may know, about building highways and destroying neighborhoods and how we urbanize, and he was writing about it, and then he had the opportunity to get involved in Massachusetts, where there was a big debate about whether or not to uh, build highways through the city of Boston, what was called the inner belt, and uh, uh, you would be an unrecognizable city if they had built it, and so his academic work and, and his good common sense and working with the people of the city led him to say they shouldn't build it. And uh, he was asked by the governor after writing that report, it was a very controversial decision actually announced on live television
1: wow. across
0: all of, all of uh, the Boston area. He was asked to then become the first secretary of transportation in Boston and to enact his proposed plan, which was to build uh, mass transit instead of highways. And that's the red line extension. That's the orange line uh, continues to affect the city today. And he did that for a number of years. And Then he actually went back to academia. And I was really struck growing up and very proud of the combination of uh, ideas that were thought of with great rigor and, and forethought, but also the willingness to uh, go into the real world and try and have impact and put your money where your mouth is.
1: Mm-hmm. That's, that's, yeah. a, that's so, a great so let's, story. Let's file that under a foreshadowing. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, so back to you. So you're— uh, Relatively studious kid, as I understand it. You went to um, uh, the local technical college, MIT, uh, majored in biology, and you found yourself in the lab of Richard Mulligan on the legendary third floor of the Whitehead Institute, which I remember because both my brother Adam and I were each privileged to spend some time on the same floor in the lab of uh, Bob Weinberg. So can you tell us what your experience there was like?
0: Oh, it was, it was really remarkable. I'd never worked in a lab before, and I found myself uh, working in Richard's lab, Uh, starting in in 1985 uh, on a project which was to use uh, the then new technology of retroviral vectors to uh, pioneer something to be useful for treating sickle cell disease with gene therapy. The specific project, it was in mice, and it was to use retroviral vectors and do bone marrow transplants in mice to see uh, what, was the, what were the progeny of the cells that you were able to transduce with the idea that then, the very specific idea at the time, that then you might be able to put in a beta globin gene in fix sickle cell disease, 1985. And um, I worked with a postdoc named Ihor Lamishka, uh, who was really a uh, phenomenal uh, human being, uh, and um, unfortunately he passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, what I really remember that summer was doing mini preps from about 8 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night um, and, and listening to the, uh, the tape of Making Movies by Dire Straits that Ihor and I listened to so many times that at a lab meeting there was actually, we didn't really vote in lab meetings, but there was actually a vote, which was that David and Ehor could not listen to that more than three times a day because we were driving <laughs> everyone crazy
1: look at But
0: but it but it, it turned into a paper uh, that uh, I was um, you know I contributed to uh that uh ehor published in 1986 in cell that i think is sort of a a, a fairly landmark paper i was you know I, I i was the undergraduate helping out with mini prep certainly was his paper but um but it did have a big impact i mean the other thing that had an impact on me was it was then the weinberg lab the baltimore lab and the mulligan lab and the number of people who were on that floor at that time who have now gone on uh, who did great things then but have gone on to fantastic careers is really uh, remarkable. And I consider myself very blessed to have had the opportunity to meet them and uh, be around them at a young age.
2: So what was the magic of that floor? What was the secret sauce that led, you know, otherwise dorky scientists to be great leaders?
0: Mm, wow. Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, the magic of the floor, of course, was the combination of talent, place, and time. You know, there, there were David Baltimore is, is David Baltimore, one of the greatest biologists the last half century. Bob Weinberg, Richard Mulligan, um, and they had attracted around them, you know, phenomenal students into this wonderful new institute they had created. So there was just an amazing amount of talent and uh, great science being done. I will say that um, I actually decided coming out of that summer to go to medical school, not to go to graduate school or even an MD-PhD program, because it was drinking from a fire hose and it was very intense. And actually, I came away from the experience really profoundly interested in science, but actually somehow having the idea that maybe all these towering figures around me, I didn't see myself as one of them. So I went to Harvard Medical School with the idea that I would go through the regular program and actually become a doctor.
2: But still, I don't think you actually answered my question, which is, you know, being a great scientist is, is a wonderful thing, of course. But I mean, it seems like many of these people really, including you, went on to become you know, commercial leaders, great leaders of, of other people and organizations, which is not the kind of thing that I think is taught in a lab. Hmm. So was that the, the magic? No, I, was it the scientists who were attracted? Were those kinds of people? You know, or was it something it's else? It's a
0: great question, and honestly one I haven't thought about before. Um, the best answer I can come up with, other than the talent and the moment in time, and so that attracted, you know, a certain kind of thing, was um, – I guess I'd say David Baltimore, actually. You know, David um, is a remarkable figure, and I've had the, the opportunity to get to know him. I didn't really know him then. He would walk by, and it was kind of like Babe Ruth walking by, you know, and you'd just sort of go, wow, that's, you go, that's Babe Ruth. <laughs> totally true. <you> know? <laughs> um, but um, I don't think he knew who I was, but I got to know him later uh, because he was, uh, helped us found the Broad Institute. It was on our board, and I, I got to know him quite well, actually. And um, he's a remarkable person, and he had done this thing. Maybe this is the best answer I can come up with. David had done this thing, which was, you know, he'd already won the Nobel Prize at something like age 35, and he had gotten to know Jack Whitehead, and they had this idea of creating the Whitehead Institute, which, um, in retrospect, like many such things, uh, does not look in any way controversial today, but it was actually very controversial at the time. And in fact, I know that because my dad was a professor of political science at MIT, and I remember him coming home to dinner when I was a kid actually, or maybe I was in you know, high school or something, saying how there was this idea to create an institute on the MIT campus that would have faculty from MIT, but it wouldn't actually be the university. It would be this thing across the street, and how controversial it was. And also there was this businessman, Jack Whitehead, who somehow was involved, even though his involvement was completely philanthropic. Um, and, uh, and, and so David figured out how to create this tremendous institute that uh, added to the MIT environment. It certainly didn't subtract from it. It added to it, and he created a fantastic enabling environment for cutting-edge science. So perhaps uh, we were uh, we observed David do that and work through the challenges to create something that today everyone considers, I think, a real pillar of um, you know of our local community, the Whitehead Institute. Even though he had to fight through uh, some some people who didn't quite see what his vision was, and then he had to figure out how to make it work. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing.
1: So maybe some real local examples of mm-hmm. leadership beyond the strictly scientific or to think about science yeah. in a broader way. Actually, <laughs> that, just if I
0: could say one other thing, David, I won't go into detail, but David had a number of public engagements and so did Richard and Bob and a lot of others in, in that community. And so we were growing up in a time where molecular biology and science and genetics were moving forward fast and the faculty and the people around us were engaging with society uh, not just doing their work.
1: That's a great point. That's mm-hmm. that's they're also visible. I mean, Bob is an you wine. Know, an incredible explainer of science. Um, and and obviously the leadership you've been describing. Um, So uh, just to to continue moving with your own story about how you went to med school, but then you subsequently were drawn. They keep pulling you back in, right? (laughs) Um, You were drawn back into the science. You did PhD with um, Connie Sepko studying cell fate determination in the retina. Um, Spent several years developing a system to test a hypothesis. You generated a scientifically interesting result that would seem to be really exciting but it left you a bit let down. Can you elaborate a bit and, and then tell, tell us a little bit about what you've described, I think, when you reflected on it as almost sort of this generating a bit of a personal, I think you use the word crisis, but as a, you know, in terms of career direction. It was
0: actually sort of a, an intellectual crisis. And I remember it very clearly when I wrote my PhD thesis. And, uh, you know, you, you pulled together the papers you wrote, but you write an introduction and a conclusion. And here's what happened. Um, I had set out uh, to try and understand cell fate determination in the retina and the role of cell signaling, something about which almost nothing was known, uh, developed a new in vitro assay for searching for such factors, was able to show that there was the evidence that there was a factor that promoted rod photoreceptor development, and then was able to try and to identify at least what a part of that factor was. And that story uh, was very much of the sort that was going on in the world at that time, but the answer was always supposed to be a protein. You would discover that the signal was a cytokine. The signal was the product of a gene, or perhaps it was a known signaling molecule. What what I found, and it's proven now almost 30 years later to be robust and reproducible and correct, it's not that it was an, elaborate, an error, is that part of this signal was something called touring an end product of amino acid metabolism with no known cool, interesting, or sexy role in biology. And if you had um, just replaced the word taurine with, you know, uh, CNTF or TNF-alpha or retinoic acid, I think it would have been seen as a phenomenal uh, advance. But instead, it just fell on, you know, people were just like, bleh. <laughs> and and, and it, it wasn't that I was concerned about my career it wasn't that I was concerned about credit. It actually was an intellectual crisis. It was like, why should it matter what the name of the thing is, first of all? And second of all, I really believed that our our job was to go into nature and find new things that weren't already known, not just to annotate known things Mm -hmm. with another role. And so I couldn't it really sort of shocked me. Like I thought we were all serious. We were going to go out and find new things. And when we found them, we'd say that's cool. But I found most people were like, I'm not interested in that. But if someone found the 27th important uh, role for Ras. That was very exciting. At that time, that was happening a lot. Hmm. So I, I found this really troubling, and it will, again, we're foreshadowing through the opening of the interview, but I became a human geneticist later and uh, certainly saw that over and over again. If you find a gene no one's ever known before, Huntington's for Huntington's, and no one knows what it is, people go, why would I be interested in that?
2: That is so weird to me as a non-scientist, because to me the 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 whole point of it is what you just described, is that new discovery, I mean, ultimately also You know, more about what you know, but the whole idea of discovering something new seems like what would be exciting. Well, I think it
0: depends on whether or not what you found that's new can be understood as to why it's exciting. There's no doubt there are many new discoveries that come out of left field that people uh, can immediately understand and see. Um, but there are others where it 's far enough away from no knowledge that it 's just new, and I actually understand from a human nature point of view there 's nothing too exciting about someone saying here 's something you 've never thought about before here 's something about which nothing 's known. it does this and I think people go, "Well, okay, and uh, you have to build a story around it, it and if you can 't maybe it, it makes no
2: sense though to me again it 's coming from social science like if you if you 're an archaeologist and you discover a brand new location that nobody ever knew was. You know, amazing tomb before. You want to open it up and find out more about it. I think what
1: Dave's talking about is um, if I'm understanding right, um, I don't want to Dave (laughs) explain. But um, the idea of I mean what I think David is saying is that there has to be a certain amount of intellectual scaffolding that has to exist to appreciate some. But novelty. you can't
2: have intellectual scaffolding around something you didn't know existed. You have to. That's that's the well, but you kind of mean. It, but in right? other words,
1: like people know. Oh, there's something here. Like people's minds are set up to understand. Mm-hmm. If only there was something that looked. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but it kind of has these attributes, mm, and right. then the thing pops up. Aha! But then if there's something where you you can't even scaffold it, you know it, it it. It sounds like that's what happened in this case. It kind of uh, sits there where people aren't rejecting it as being false. It's sort of like almost more of a meh. That's so, right. So, David, so you had this experience, and then you were like, you know, what the F do I do? You even considered of all, you know, you know how do you say that, um, Horrible uh, management consulting, a career your, let us just say, brilliant wife, uh, Jill – um, uh, has pursued with great and legendary success. Um, but then what did you, what was the, the app? you know, it's sort of, if you're going to take us through, you know, through, through crisis, you have to take us through resolution. Um, what, uh, ha- how did you move forward?
0: So I loved my PhD. I loved science. And then I went back to medical school and I loved taking care of patients. And so this should have been, great, I'm going to be a physician-scientist, that had always been my plan. But the crisis you referred to was actually, uh, sort of went on for a period of time, and I finished my PhD, and I loved it scientifically, but I had this sort of intellectual uh, uh, you know, tension in my head about the value of new things versus things people already knew. And then I went to become a doctor at Mass General Hospital, which I loved, and I encountered patients who had all these different uh, diseases that we didn't understand, And I really was in this sort of foment about, well, can you connect science and medicine? Because it wasn't entirely obvious to me how you do it. And I even thought about other careers because I couldn't figure it out. And then I really, it snapped, it clicked for me, uh, the idea of becoming a human geneticist. Because there's this
1: obscure guy named Linder, Lander, Lander, something like that. I mean,
0: I I ended up working with Eric Lander, but it really, the idea preceded working with Eric. I went out and sought Eric. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I went out and and, and introduced myself or tried to get into Eric's lab because I was going through this thing. And I, I didn't really believe that you could work up your way from fundamental biology as as an individual that I could figure out how to work up my way from some fundamental biological process through disease, through understanding. It seemed to me you you should start with the patient who you're trying to understand and work backwards to the biology, and that's what human geneticists did and do.
1: That's such a fateful decision, it sounds like, then you made to do that and then to partner with, 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 to work with, and then ultimately partner with Eric um, can you describe how that went, and how you went from this described as you know this sort of personal crisis? This is what I'm going to sort of do as an interest to this unbelievable career as you know one of the you know this foremost human geneticist, co-founder of the Broad, all the work the Broad has done. How did that explosion happen?
0: So, so I'm going to I'm going to explain it, and I'm really talking to. Uh... Young people who may be listening to this who are at a stage of their career where it hasn't happened for them yet. Because I'm going to tell you exactly what happened, which was I, I did figure out after all this sort of uncertainty that if I could be a human geneticist, and, and in particular I was interested in diabetes and cardiovascular disease, and I wanted to try and figure out the genetics of those common complex traits, uh, that, I, that that's what I'd want to do. And I tried to get in touch with Eric, and actually, uh, I was a resident. I was working 100 hours a week. And, and <laughs> sorry, Eric, but you know the story. Uh, he, you know, I didn't get an answer to my phone calls right away. And my wife and I were on vacation, actually, uh, my one of my brief uh, times off. And I called in on a payphone. That's a thing we used to have before cell phones to call into our voicemail. And there was a message from Eric on my voicemail like four months after I'd written him saying, David, <laughs> Eric Lander, we should get together. So I went to meet with him. And, um, I had this idea. I wanted to study the genetics of complex traits. And everyone I had spoken to, everyone, without exception, had told me this was career suicide. And I talked to a lot of people about it. They all said, no one's ever made progress studying the genetics of polygenic traits. It's not clear you can or ever will. And anyway, why would you want to? Because all you would do is discover something new that no one ever had heard of before. Wouldn't you rather work in a mechanistic reductionist molecular biology lab studying some phenomenon that's more tractable? And I didn't want to do that. So I walk into Eric's office and he sort of says, what do you want to do? And I sort of sheepishly say what I want to do. And he goes, that's fantastic. What else would be worth doing? And he was really the only person I ever met in the mid-1990s who thought studying the genetics of common complex diseases was worth doing. And so I decided, actually against advice of all of our mentors at Mass General and, and my mentors at Harvard, to go do this. Because it was the thing I wanted to do. And it was the thing that I was passionate about. And, and that made all the difference in the world.
1: Just a quick pushing on that, just for one second. I'm going to well, you say like you were passionate about it. no? Because there's this whole debate about, do you follow your passion or did you, does your passion follow you? In other words, you get good at something and then you become passionate about it, which is like what Scott Adams says. So here, you're like, oh, I'm passionate about uh, you know, the, your complex traits and understanding it. But h- how firmly did you really have a sense of that? I mean, it seems like you were looking at different ideas. You kind of had this idea, oh, this is sort of intriguing. But how, did, like, how passionate was it versus it's sort of like something you were floating?
0: Have you ever fallen in love with someone? I'm oh, David. No, no, and I, I don't mean I don't mean a person. No, no, no. What I mean is what I mean yeah. is, and I don't mean I fell in love with a person. I mean I fell in love with an no, idea. No, I understand. I understand. And no, but it, it was it.
1: like it was like that. It just like once you once. So it really was like that in this case so, where so I, with I've this had concept. Few,
0: that's right. I've had a few moments in my life when I, I don't think of myself as a risk taker, uh, particularly. Uh, but I realized there are a few moments in my life when I took certain risks. Or at least in retrospect, I look back and go, they probably were risks. You know, One was becoming a human geneticist and going to the Human Genome Project in 1995. I made that decision, 95, 96, before all the things that happened, happened at a time when literally everybody told me it was a terrible idea. That was one. A second, actually, we can get to is when I worked with Eric and Todd and Stuart and others to found the Broad Institute, that was actually reasonably controversial. And, um, and you know, there was a risk, not so much maybe for someone more senior, but I was a new assistant professor in my first year. So to sort of go want to do that. Um, and then later moving to Vertex.
2: So I think it's so interesting. I'm sitting here pondering this whole idea. I'm watching the pondering on her face of how it's less desirable. Um, from the traditional science point of view, to discover something new. And I'm I'm thinking to myself about all the entrepreneurs I've dealt with over the years and how for them, you know, when somebody says something's impossible, that's the catalyst to do it. And it sounds like, in your case, you're the scientific version of that in a way, just really an entrepreneur, you know, more interested in what people think can't be done or shouldn't be done or it's impossible to do versus, you know, refining, you know, step number thirty eight of something well, that, everybody already knows. No, that
0: certainly I, I don't know how entrepreneurial I am, but I certainly do know that what interests me is what could be done, not what has been done. And actually that's when I sort of when I went to Harvard Medical School, I said I went and I thought I would be a doctor and then I realized quickly actually I wanted to be an MB PhD was actually in the first year of medical school. I, I loved it. I loved everything about it, but I wasn't interested. I could learn all the stuff that was already known. I was pretty good at taking tests and learning, and I never had a problem mastering the material, but it didn't interest me in the way that the unknown did. I would be the guy in class, raise my hand, the professor would say something. I'd say, Why, why do you say that? How are you sure that's true? What data? Do you have to support that? And because uh, I, if I couldn't, and sometimes they said, uh, "Kid, come over here. I'll show you all the data." But sometimes, in fact, quite often, I discovered that, you know, my intuition, which was that there's no way to know that thing. Like, how would you have done it? Um, was sound. And I've always been much more excited by the vision, and excitement of what if we could sequence the human genome and test all the variation for a role in disease. What if you could make? Uh, you know, a, a, a therapeutic that could treat a disease that no one had ever treated before. How would that work has always been more exciting to me. And then how do you build an organization and a team that can do that thing? Those are the things that really excite me.
1: My gosh, there's so much that's here. I mean, and, and I think that you're talking about several different c- distinctions. First, I think that you're talking about a distinction between clin- the clinical experience, you know, where you're trying to learn stuff so that you can take care of the patient in front of you, and research where you're trying, you know, in your case, you're trying to think about the, the, the future patients, so you're offering them something different. And then the other thing it sounds like you're talking about in the context of genetics is, and this is, you know, is how reductionist to sort of be, is whether to sort of go from the, the at the time which just like you're describing, I mean I wish like I just feel like saying preach or amen because <laughs> what you're describing really is a sort of very basic let's study here's a protein let's say a pathway let's study from all little bits and pieces and put them together and what you were sort of describing was well is there a way to start at with sort of the, the almost an ascent more of a macro level here's a patient and sort of kind of go from the top down in an approach that no one was, you know it was unclear how it would have how it would evolve and you know and not every Thing developed the way that was anticipated with the common variants, common diseases, right? So, I mean, there was a lot of learning along absolutely, the way. Absolutely, I absolutely.
0: Mean, you know, maybe, maybe I should say that um, I, I do agree with all that. And I think that, um, you know, at Vertex, we actually talk a lot about, we use a simple idea of the why, the what, and the how. And what became clear to me back 20, 25 years ago was that, you know, maybe 30 years ago, was the why. Why did we do this? It was to have a positive impact on human health. It was to diminish suffering. The what was, to me, understand disease at a fundamental level and try and intervene at the root cause. And then the how became pull together technologies, multidisciplinary teams, and build high-performing organizations that could really drive all the way from an idea to impact.
1: So that, it sounds like you're describing, you know, I think you're describing a you new know, vertex in particular. Maybe we could just, I, I know we only have like a couple of minutes left, but still go back half a step and say, so the decision to pursue genetics, human genetics with Eric, I would say worked out reasonably well. Um, you published a ton, became an acknowledged leader in this emerging field, an academic superstar. Um, and as you know, the inside word at Harvard is that it's run as a club for senior faculty. And here you are a member of the club. And so I'm just sort of curious what made you decide Groucho Mark style that you wanted to relinquish your membership and pursue something else like Vertex.
0: Well, actually, I'm going to start by saying I really uh, disagree with what you just said about how uh, the way you describe the Broad and the way I see the Broad are fundamentally different. So actually, let me just comment on that if I could. Um, To me, and I think actually to most people who are around the place, the magic of the Broad was actually the young people. The magic of the Broad, in fact, a lot of the senior faculty weren't interested because uh, they were used to a different model. What really happened when we first opened the Broad in 2004, was we had already been working in a model for the previous seven to 10 years, where a whole bunch of young people, myself, was, I was one, Todd Golub, Joel Hirshhorn, Pamela Sklar, Mark Daly, John Rio, a whole bunch of people, had come and, and come to work with Eric because we were excited by the science and by the model. And when the Broad uh, became real, um, for the, certainly the, I was there for uh, the next 10 years, what was astounding were the number of brilliant young people, many of whom are now senior faculty, but who were then grad students and postdocs who were able to come into this research-enabling environment and do things they couldn't do anywhere else. And so for me, at least, the, the story of the Broad and the excitement of the Broad are like, in my lab, the 20 people who were you know, students, undergraduates, grad students, postdocs, who are all now either successful faculty or uh, you know, leaders and companies who grew up there, and I think all of my colleagues at the Broad say it's a place entirely about young people, not about senior faculty.
1: Right. I mean, I would say that that the cliche isn't particularly about the Broad. I would just say it's what people say about Harvard more generally, not particularly about the Broad.
0: Ah, and that's why we—that's one of the things we were trying to do. So, so first of all, I'd say, um, you know, just come to your question now. You know, why did I? Uh, go into uh, move to vertex, you know, to skip over 15 or 18 years of my life, um, you know, the vision was if you could get from the patient to the root cause and their disease to the root biological cause, then you would be able to do something therapeutic. that would be better. That's what got me started. Literally Jill and Jill and I, on our first date, talked about that concept, honestly, like, and that was, that was 31. That was, 31, 31 years ago, okay? So, so by, by five years ago, you know, to my mind, the intellectual question, which was, could you understand the genetic basis of common complex diseases, and the more practical question of could you discover things that were useful that could inspire therapeutics, were clearly both answered to my date. mind, Yes. <laughs> I felt that I understood the genetic basis of wow. complex common diseases, sort of the underlying principles. And clearly, among the many thousands and tens of thousands of discoveries that had been made, there were a subset, a small subset, that were ripe for therapeutics. And also there was the legacy of thirty years of Mendelian genetics where much had been learned, but most of those diseases were not yet conquered. And I realized starting in about 2009, 2010, that that was the problem that interested me now, that I had been interested for 15 years or so in, could you understand the genetic base of disease? And now I was interested in how do you turn it into therapeutics? And I started collaborating with companies. I started consulting for companies. And I had the great good fortune to be asked to join the board of directors of Vertex. And so I joined the board of directors of Vertex in Uh, early 2012, just as Jeff Lyden was becoming, had just become CEO. And I really um, both uh, crystallized my own ideas about how you would use uh, human biology, not just genetics, but anything that could form a link between human biology, causal biology and therapeutics, and how you might uh, take a strategy to succeed. And I fell in love with Vertex because the company and the people and the cystic fibrosis story and the leadership team were all phenomenal. And so, over the next few years, as my own thinking evolved and as the company evolved, um, it just was a, a uh, became apparent when I had the uh, opportunity to join that this was the way to realize the the vision that that not only that I had but that the company had that Jeff had that that his team had, and it just was very natural.
2: So was there any kind of blowback from the science uh, you know community you built around yourself? to go on to the commercial question. side, you know, was that considered, you know, a cop-out or a plus or a what, you know,
1: how was that perceived? A great question. I'm curious. Yeah, totally,
0: totally, uh, nothing but positive feedback. Honestly, I think uh, sometimes I feel like, you know, that, that, that uh, biotech is becoming like sports radio where everyone wants to see controversy and, you know, all this stuff. Actually, to be honest with you, I, I described it hopefully in a thoughtful way. I got nothing but positive support. People actually uh, said to me, I get it. I, you know, if they read the papers I've been writing, if they knew Vertex as a company, and I've had actually both a fantastic and positive experience myself at Vertex, but um, I see, you know, I think that this old idea that, uh, you know, there's somehow, uh, you know, this divide between these worlds um, has really faded. Um, I think that there are very important questions about how we nurture all parts of the ecosystem. It's not that, that academia should be industry or industry should be academia. But at least my experience has been that all of my colleagues uh, sort of understand that there are roles to play on all sides, and we need good people in all these different uh, organizations.
1: Are there aspects of industry you found challenging to get used to? Well, again,
0: I hate to be too positive, but I've, I've had a great time. And honestly, it, it was a very smooth transition, I think, perhaps made easier by the fact that, first of all, I was not coming out of a a position where I only ran a small academic lab. I had been working at Uh, to build the Broad Institute, which at that time was um, already a couple thousand people and very involved in organizational leadership and had done sort of big, uh, larger scientific projects. But I think also I knew Vertex as an organization. I knew the people. Having said that, I would say the the things that really uh, were notable and required a great learning curve, one was just learning much, much more about how you discover and develop medicines than I knew before. So There's a huge and steep learning curve, uh, which is, was you know, great because I love to learn. Um, but that was certainly something. Um, you know, the, the level of teamwork in companies is just extraordinary. Um, you know, and uh, multidisciplinary teamwork—truly different uh, people with different backgrounds all working together—and that was uh, sort of made me certainly raise the game, uh, my game as a leader. And, um, and then the high level of, of accountability to outcomes. I think that um, one of the things that uh, if you really want to get things done, uh, you need to measure the outcome and not just the input. And what I mean by that is, um, uh, you know, we either in the end at Vertex discover, develop and dis- discover and develop a medicine that really helps patients or it doesn't. And one of the things I'm fond of saying is success at Vertex is we discover a medicine that people are taking. That's success. Everything else is a means to an end.
1: But it's a real problem when it's a long-term outcome, and then you, people are sort of stuck looking at process measures and um, as the only thing that's measurable in a relatively short time frame um, that you sort of need to make the regular decisions, right?
0: That's right. I think that that's, that is, I think, the great challenge of, of uh, you know, biotechnology and pharmaceuticals is that the, the period of time between starting a project and knowing whether or not it really helps people is fairly long. And the intermediate measures that exist today are very imperfect proxies and sometimes have perverse incentives attached to them as to whether or not you'll succeed in the long run. And so at Vertex, we've worked very hard to come up with both a corporate and research strategy that we think uh, increases the likelihood that we will succeed in the long run rather than uh, focusing on, you know, what we can do next year. We say, what do we believe will lead to long-term success? And at least in the cystic fibrosis program, it's it certainly served us well and the new programs are moving forward. We're uh, are very adherent to that strategy and we're excited to, to drive them forward and, and hopefully uh, have some of them succeed as well.
2: And I believe time proved you right on your early sickle cell work too, that the types of things you were looking into as potential treatments in mice, have turned into successful treatments in people as well, right?
0: I think that the key here is uh, to one, uh, the, the keys to the strategy in my mind are one, work on diseases where we understand the underlying cause of disease in people and to go after that underlying cause of disease. We can talk about that, but not that's actually not what everybody does. A lot of people go after downstream biology. They go after essentially cellular symptoms. uh, And they don't go after the root cause. But for example, our cystic fibrosis medicines, they address uh, CFTR mutations are the cause of cystic fibrosis. And our CFTR modulators aim to restore that CFTR function and have uh, then shown what that can do for patients. Um, So one is to to, to go after diseases where we do know the underlying cause and with great certainty in people. And then the other is to be willing to and able to develop new therapeutic approaches, either yourself or through partnership, that allow you to to attack and address that underlying cause when it wasn't possible before. And the reason that's the other key part of the strategy is, of course, if there's an off-the-shelf tool that will allow you to address the underlying cause of a disease, people have typically uh, gone after that. But the magic is really when you bring together an insight into the underlying root cause of a serious life-threatening human disease together with a therapeutic innovation that makes it possible to address that underlying cause. That's where the magic happens.
1: Terrific. Um, Last question, and then we have a sort of a post-interview question. Um, So last question is, What advice, it's almost hokey, but I'm really curious in your case, to be honest with you, what advice would you give some version of your younger self based on what you've learned? I mean, either the David in high school or in college or or like some kind of life lesson you feel like, oh, if you had understood it better, um, something, you know, you you wish you kind of came to that insight earlier.
0: Seems to me that having a happy and productive life, uh, you have to consider three things. One is, uh, what are you passionate about? What are you really excited about? That's one. The second is, what are you actually good at? And the third is, where is there something that society needs and would value you doing? That the magic is where those three things come together. So, for example, I really like to sing, but I'm not a particularly good singer, and I don't think society would value my singing very much. So it probably would have been a frustrating career for me. Um <laughs> conversely, you know, I might be very, very good at something, but I don't enjoy doing it. Or there might be that society rewards something very much, you know, uh, but, but, you know, it, it's not uh, something I would like to do. And so for me, you know, it was a combination of science in the service of human health. That was the, and in particular, breakthrough science, whether it was retroviral vectors, the Human Genome Project, therapeutic innovation, some breakthrough in science, uh, that it turns out I'm good at uh, identifying those opportunities and helping teams of people work together and share purpose to them. And society continues to value breakthroughs in human health. And so for me, that works. I think the, the key thing is, can you be honest with yourself about what you really like to do, what you're really good at, what society needs? And there's, again, a little bit of pragmatism there, which is um, try and do because in the end, making progress and having impact is very gratifying.
1: Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today and for for sharing what seems like kind of very much the mid-stage of a very exciting uh, life journey. Yeah, it was really a pleasure. It really got me thinking. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Well, that was pretty interesting. Uh, it you seemed know, like you were, you were like, I there's a lot of... So I was so,
2: like, the juices were flowing in my head about, like, this idea. And I maybe tell me if it's true. I mean, is it true that in science it's more valued to do the
1: incremental than the new? Well, I, you know, I think on the one hand, I'm not sure exactly what he was saying that. I think it was, but I understand how that came across. I think it was more the point that there are many types of new. And I think that the idea is people like new, but when there's sort of scaffolding or some type of way to understand it, when something is completely new and you you can't even begin to understand where it fits in, I, I think it just sort of sits more uncomfortably initially, and I think maybe that's where he was going.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think that's such an interesting observation because it's so counter to what I yeah would perceive as what's exciting about science, right? To me, the thing is like, wow, look at this new crazy thing we learned. Right. What do we do with that, you know, it would be so much more compelling,
1: yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do with the way new science or new knowledge comes and it's sort of like real things aren't just so out of the blue, but they're come within a framework for right. understanding. And people actually go through that there's that really interesting book called Discovering which really sort of talked about it and how you know everyone says oh for Alexander Fleming penicillin mm-hmm. how it was a serendipity and that got his mm-hmm. brain go. but it turned out the thing that he discovered he'd been thinking about for so long and he was looking for something that would have almost the exact properties mm-hmm. that his mold happened to have so yes it was lucky the mold landed on the Petri dish but his mind was prepared for it. It had been, it had sort of, you know, sort of pre, it was Mm -hmm. was ready to receive it, you know, chance favors a prepared mind. Right. Whereas I think maybe the idea is if your mind is really unprepared, even if you see something super profound, you don't really recognize it or know what to do with it.
2: I guess so. I guess so. I think Although I heard something a little bit different from him, I thought. Mm -hmm. Um, The things that make it to the movies are the ones where somebody discovered something completely unexpected and then figured out how to use it to their advantage. And yes, they may have been thinking about things in that general vicinity or they wouldn't have happened to cross it. But, you know, just the the excitement of of the unfound jungle, you know, would to me be much more interesting in theory than the finding the next, you know, acre of the jungle you'd already been in.
1: right. All right, well, all right, so we will come back to this history of science and how discovery happened because it's a great <laughs> topic. Uh, please remember to, uh, m- more mundanely, rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, help others discover the show.
2: You can follow David's writing at Forbes.
1: And you can follow the wonderful Lisa Sunan at com.
2: We're grateful to our sponsor, Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm. That includes a full service law firm and a broad based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help clients grow and prosper. And that Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system.
1: Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in scenic Mill Valley, California. Be well. Be
2: well. <laughs>